My name is Kevin Hines. I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I believed that I had to die, but I lived. Today, I travel the world with my lovely wife, Margaret, sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. Now, we help people be here tomorrow. Welcome to the Hindsights Podcast. RI International and Behavioral Health Link are providers of the Crisis Now model, transforming crisis services for behavioral emergencies. RI International tends to the mental health crisis of the individuals in 10 states across the United States and internationally to provide support and care for people during the lowest point in their lives. Behavioral Health Link operates crisis call center services, dispatches GPS-enabled mobile crisis services to homes and community locations, and offers the country's most trusted crisis system software, Care Traffic Control. The time to transform crisis care services is now. Find out more at crisisnow.com. Hey, buddy. How are you, brother? Good to see you, man. Good to see you too, my friend. So uh, I was just saying, you know, the reason I started coming on at night was uh, was because I had this really interesting experience the other night where I just came on. I wanted to do some breathing exercises and I just had this feeling like we should talk. And a young woman in the comments had mentioned that she was going to take her life that night. And I just thought, wow, for everyone, you know, there's a hundred more that are thinking about it. And none of us are untouched by what's happening right now. This is like it's magnifying everything. So Kevin, you and I have been friends for a while. We met three, four years ago, three years ago, maybe now. And I was so damn moved by you and your story. And who better than to share some wisdom and some insight about what it's like and mental health and maybe some tips and tricks for all of us than you, man. Because I mean, like, first of all, and I think it's important to just, first of all, hear your story because it's like unbelievable, even down to the sea lion. And if you can just give us like five minutes of your story, that would just be super cool of you. Absolutely. You bet. Uh, We met at the Voice Awards about three and a half years ago, and you were so kind to reach out to me then and to invite me to be on your Instagram that day. But to tell you my story in a brief five minutes, you know, in in a shortened version, I lived in poverty at my birth. I was adopted. I was given a great life after my initial traumatic experience as an infant. And I thought, how could life go south from here? I've got a great family. I've got great friends. My life's going to, I'm going to coast. I'm going to get that good job, go to that great school, get that good job like my dad's always talking about. And then at 17 and a half years of age, everything shattered. Everything. I had a complete mental breakdown in front of 1,200 people at a high school play that I was in. And I would not recover for the better part of a decade and a half. And in that decade and a half, in the next two years, as I'm 19 years of age in the year 2000, I find myself regularly thinking of suicide, taking my life and attempting to die with my hands. And it leads me to go to the Golden Gate Bridge and jump off. And so for anybody watching where suicide the trigger, just bear with us. This is an important message to be heard because it was the millisecond that my hands left the rail that I had an instantaneous regret for my actions and the 100% recognition that I just made the greatest mistake of my life and it was too late. So, so you're, you're convinced, you're ready to take your life, you get there, you walk onto the edge and you let go. And at that moment, you knew it was wrong. At that moment, I knew it was a mistake. And this is, let me tell you why. Ooh, it's, because, so- it's because in suicidal crisis, 
we don't recognize that our thoughts don't have to become our actions. If we can recognize through self-awareness techniques like I do today, that our thoughts don't have to own, rule, or define our next action, we can always stay here. And I didn't know that. And so say, I that, found, say that one more time for everybody. Say that one more time. If, if we can recognize through self-awareness techniques that our thoughts don't have to own, rule, or define our next action, we can always remain here. We can be here tomorrow and every day after that. Mm. And so, you know, what happened next for me was I fell 220 feet, 25 stories at 75 miles an hour in four seconds. It is a way that is 99% fatal off the Golden Gate. You're 1% of people 1% to survive this fall in 83 years of the bridge being opened. Yes. And of the 1% that survived that fall, which is roughly around 39 individuals, only 26 remain alive today. Of those who remain alive today, only five of us survivors get the privilege to stand, walk, and run. The rest have to use other means to, to be mobile, aren't fully mobile, aren't fully capable. When I hit that water, I went down so fast, 70 feet beneath the water surface, because you're falling at a velocity that's so fast from the, from the top of the bridge to the, to the top of the water. When you hit that water, it's like a vacuum sucks you under 70 feet. And I opened my eyes, and Justin, it couldn't even occur to me that I was going to drown. When I was before on that bridge, it didn't even occur to me by jumping into a giant body of water, I might drown. Because of irrational and illogical thoughts that bring about suicidal ideation, not rational and logical thoughts. And so I frantically swim to the surface, but I can't feel my legs. And I didn't realize this at the time. I would learn later in the hospital, I had shattered my T12, L1, L2 lower vertebrae into shards. I had missed severing my spinal cord by two millimeters. I make my way to the surface hoping, wishing, and praying that I'd survive. And I remember vividly bobbing up and down in the water and praying, God, please save me. I don't want to die. I made a mistake on repeat. And that is when something began to circle beneath me, something very large, very slimy, and very much alive. And I remember thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me. I didn't die jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and a shark is going to eat me. <laughs> I was freaking out. And I'm punching this thing in the water, but it won't go away. And it turns out it was no shark. I was on a television program promoting a suicide prevention campaign some year later. And a man wrote into the show named Morgan McWard. And shout out to Morgan if he's out there listening, because he wrote into the show and he said, Kevin, I'm so very glad you're alive. I was standing next less than two feet away from you when you jumped. Until this day, no one would tell me whether you lived or died. It's haunted me until now. By the way, there was no shark like you mentioned on the show, but there absolutely was a sea lion. And the people above looking down believed it to be keeping your body afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind you. Now, if you don't call that a miracle, I don't know what is. No, man, you can see I'm like, especially like your prayer for like forgiveness. And whew. so since that day, since you survived, you've made it a mission of yours to do everything you can to make sure that other people who've had those similar thoughts make a different choice than you. So the point of this, I think, man, is like, you know, what's happening right now. There's a lot of people that already struggle with mental health. I think for the most part, everybody does without even really realizing it. We just use different, we have different coping mechanisms. I'm grateful to know what mine are. <laughs> but what are some things that you've learned over the years that could be really helpful right now? Because this is, I mean, that's why, I, you know, when I called you to ask you, one of the things I asked was, how are you? Because, yeah. you know, I imagine that, you know, this isn't something that like you snap your fingers and it goes away. This isn't something that like, you know, you can just cure with happy thoughts and positive thinking or cold plunges, right? Like, right. Uh, so 
it's a very serious thing and it needs to be taken serious. And so I just am wondering, like, what can someone watching this or listening to this do right now that's having some of these thoughts? Well, for one thing, you know, you mentioned in one of your live feeds about breathing and you were doing the breathing exercises in that feed you were talking about when we first opened up here. So the one thing, yeah. one thing people can do, and I'll say it again, maybe you've already said this, but is that when you come to a place and you find yourself mentally on, a, on the teetering line of, of unhinged or worried or, or terribly terrified of, of your brain well-being, you need to sit down. You need to sit down and take stock of, of your life for a moment and you need to breathe. You need to do that in four, out eight, you know, in, in four through your nose, out eight through pursed lips like a whistle but no sound and do it up as a 30 times because what that's going to do is bring your body to a calm. It's going to quell anxiety, panic, an adrenaline rush. It's going to lower your blood pressure. When you do proper breathing skills and techniques over time, they actually have an effect in lowering your blood sugar if you're dealing with blood sugar issues. So one of the things we know, just I know you know this, is that I think over 80% of the population isn't breathing properly throughout the day. I'm one of those people. My wife tells me half the, half the time, she's like, baby, you're not breathing. Oh, shit. Because <laughs> I don't start even to make, notice it. I like hold my breath and I start to make this like sound and she can hear it from across the room. <laughs> so it affects, it affects everybody. It affects me too. I just have this kicked in kind of a apparatus where I go, oh, Kev, you're doing it again. And mm. you have to take that time to do that deep breathing to bring your body and mind to a calm. Now, that's the first step. When you take your body and mind to a calm, you need to take step two. You need to find someone that is willing to listen to your pain, hear, hear your pain, because a pain shared is a pain halved. When you share a mm. moment of struggle, Pain shared is a pain halved. Pain shared is a pain halved. Mm. You know, I've watched people like Tony Robbins say, don't share your pain. Because I've seen his, he does great work, but I've seen him talk about not sharing your pain because it's a waste of time. I formidably disagree with that notion. And I'll tell you, and no offense to him or his, his teachings, I formidably disagree with that notion because when you find people that can empathize with your struggle and can put themselves in your shoes, you end up feeling lighter because of it. You mm -hmm. end up feeling like you've gotten it off your chest into the real world and someone has received that and they've given you validation to your pain so you're not alone in that moment. And at that second in time, you feel something very important, and that is relief. Mm. And seen. You feel seen. Yes. And heard. Relief, seen, and heard. So can you walk us through your, because you, you said it rather quickly, the breathing that you do. I, I was doing something called box breathing, which is essentially like five seconds in, holding for five seconds, five seconds out, and then holding again. So it kind of looks like a box if you think about yeah. it. Can you yeah. walk us through your breathing technique? Maybe we could do one or two of them together so that people can understand like how it works. Absolutely. Let's definitely do them together. And box breathing is super important too. So I'm a, I'm a proponent of that as well. So the one I do is called 4-8, which used to be 4-7-8, which was similar to yours, uh, where you do four, hold for seven, release for eight. But scientists found out that doing 4-8, directly releasing was, was better for the brain. So I inhale four seconds through my nose. And I release eight seconds through my mouth, pursed lips like a whistle, but no sound. I then do that 30 times. And that's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. Before I grab my phone, hmm. before I take a shower, before I eat breakfast, I do my breathing. Can we do and it one more time? Ready? We'll do it again. We'll in do it one four, more time. So, so everybody four, yeah. do this with us right now. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, in four.
and you just repeat. And you then repeat four and out eight. I four love enough. this. I do this at the least three times a day, morning, noon, and night. But when I'm when I'm having anxiety, which lately has been more often than not, um, I find myself utilizing that breathing technique to get through the day. Mm. Can I go to some questions from our fans? Let's, let's do it. So speaking of which, Leah writes, I rarely have had panic attacks, but I've been waking up every day this week with mild panic attacks. I know it's just the emotions stacking up, but is there a way to process them without them waking me up gasping for breath at three in the morning? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, Leah, I'm so sorry you're going through that. That is absolutely terrifying. And I can, I can totally empathize. I do get panic attacks. And I, I think that the, the breathing technique we shared would benefit you on a long-term basis. So I think starting to do what we suggested, either the box breathing that Justin suggested or the 4-8 that I suggested morning, noon, at night, and every time you, you find yourself in an anxious place, start doing that and make it a religious effect. You're doing it every day without fail, three times a day at the very least. I think that that like can help workout. you. Like your own workout, like your breathing mm. workout. Because I would imagine, Leah, that you are not breathing properly throughout the day. And I'm not trying to offend you. I just think that that's, I, I bet you that that is a factor in what you're going through. And it's not going to be the solvent. It's not going to solve all your issues with panic attacks. It certainly is going to bring your body and mind to a calm when it's necessary. Mm, awesome. Leah, I hope that was helpful. So Vani writes, how can we overcome the loss of our own personality and our happiness under clinical depression. Sometimes I just feel so lost. Oh man, Bonnie, I have been through a multitude of depressions in my life. I, I'm certain I, will, I haven't gone through my last. And when I get to that clinical state of depression, I do feel like I've lost a sense of myself. And I think you have to remember in those times of depressive crisis that there was a time of you before depression and there'll be a time of you after depression. If you can focus on remembering the good times, you can recognize that they will come again and that your loss of sense of self in that clinical depression will pass. My father used to say, Kevin, this too shall pass. He also was fond of saying, Kevin, you come a long way from under the Golden Gate Bridge. And so if you can find that anchor, Vani, where you've come a long way since when and remind yourself of that when you're going through it, then my friend, you can get past it. Amazing. Amazing advice, man. Jamie, this is a tough one. Jamie wrote, my brother died of suicide last year and I feel so guilty. How do I keep my head up? Mm. Jamie, uh, I'll say this first. That guilt does not belong to you. Your brother didn't die because of you. Your brother didn't die in spite of you. He died because of an epic and lethal amount of emotional pain. And that had nothing to do with you. When you can accept that, you can move forward. Now, I'll say this. We ask the question when someone dies by suicide, I've had 10 people in my life pass away by suicide. We, we ask ourselves the question, why? That is the wrong question to ask. We must ask ourselves, how do we look to the living and move forward? Not onward. It's too hard to move on from a suicide. I don't believe it's possible. I'll be honest with you. We're always going to feel it. We're always going to know it. It's always going to hurt. But we can find a way to look to those who still remain and move forward through the pain to find hope at the end of the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And if you don't see beauty wow. in the next person you meet, you're not looking hard enough. That's amazing advice. I'm going to, you know, I had a first cousin who took his own life when I was 20, 21. And uh, was my, my aunt's only son. And it just, she's been holding that for, for all these years. And that's really good advice, man. I appreciate that. 
And uh, Jamie, I hope uh, I hope you you heard that. That's not on you, and that pain's not yours. So Tanya actually said, "What are some simple techniques to stop a panic attack?" I'm assuming that breathing technique is is helpful. My therapist actually, I asked him this question, and I'm curious what you think about it. Is one of he essentially said, uh, uh, "Try to have one," because <laughs> you can't, right? No, no, he can't. What are What are some of your thoughts around like boom, a panic attack hits three thirty in the morning, she wakes up, or Tanya has one. What do you do when you're in the middle of that panic state? The first thing is the breathing work, but there's another thing you can do. You can do a grounding technique. And this grounding technique is proven to work for people who have hallucinations, panic attacks, and anxiety issues. My doctor taught it to me. I utilize it all the time. Do this with me, okay? Put your hands up in front of your face. Hands in front of your face, okay? Okay. All right. Now, can you see my hands, Justin? Uh, yes. And I can see yours, okay? Yes. They're not hallucinations. They're real, right? Yes. Okay. Now grasp your hand together in a clasping motion. Okay. Now go back and forth. Feel the weight and the brunt of the palm against itself. Okay. Now, the idea here is that you are solely focusing on your hand's weight against itself. And over time, you tighten the grip. Not so it hurts, but so you really feel it. All right? You feel that grip. What this is doing, as you're doing the breathing technique simultaneously, is bringing your focus onto the grip and the intensity of the grip as mm. opposed to the panic. Wow. And you bring it back down. You bring it back down when you're done doing about 30 of those breaths and 30 of those hand motions. And your mind has now focused solely on your hand because you're looking at your hands. You're not looking at anything else. Yeah. And you're, and you're absolutely bringing your body and your mind to a calm when this is going on. And it might feel goofy. It might look goofy to somebody else, but that doesn't matter. You do this for yourself because you want to keep yourself sane. And it's going to help you. And it works. It works a lot. I so, utilize it when I have hallucinations, when I see things that don't exist to anyone but me. The reason I can recognize that they're hallucinations and not the reality I live in and not the reality everybody else lives in is because I say to myself, you know, for example, I, have, I used to have a hallucination where I would see a man in, in a corner with a, a butcher knife and I thought he was coming to get me. This ooh. would happen at speeches. It would happen all the time. And I realized through this coping technique and the breathing that if I was in a speech where this guy was in the far corner, I would say to myself, he is not in our collective reality. He is in a distorted reality and he cannot hurt me. And that's another coping technique for people who you haven't, nobody's asked, but for the folks out there who live with hallucinatory episodes, which are very, very common, you know, these, this is one of the things you can do. You can do this grasping of the hands and bring yourself through that breath work and, and, the, and the dual wow. grasping out of such struggling times. And I'm assuming if it will work in such an extreme situation, it, it'll work in a, and maybe just for someone that's having anxiety, like as an example, for me, there's some mornings I wake up or my wife and I talk about it and just, whoa, I feel, feel heavy. I, you know, I, I feel that in my stomach. It's not a panic attack, but it's uncomfortable. And it's like, you know, it's like when you've had too much coffee and you're yep. like, ah, is that something that could help that you think will just help even a, on a, in a lesser version of a panic attack or yeah, no, it, it's, it's meant to cover the levels, the gamut. It, it's mm. really something that can help a lot of people with a lot of different variations of, of panic and anxiety. What's been really helping me recently for what I've been going through. And I told you a little bit about it, but I'm somebody that, uh, you know, I go a mile a minute and I'm always just thinking and sometimes accidentally running from whatever I'm feeling. And I'm, I'm a hyper creative and I found that it's hard for me to just sit cross-legged and meditate for 10 minutes <laughs> or 15 minutes or 20 minutes. I've done it. I can do it. 
But sometimes afterwards, I don't feel as refreshed as I want to. Prayer is great for me, but this like, I'm somebody that my body helps me get into my spirit. And what I found was cold exposure and like, you know, even taking a cold shower forces me physiologically into a similar um, focus that this does. It's like a, I have no choice but to be aware of my breath. I have no choice but to be aware of the cold that's coming all over my body, right? That's just touching everywhere. And you have to relax through breath. And that's like my version of this recently. And it's been, it's been really life-changing for me just in the last two and a half months. I've noticed my happiness level increasing. And again, it's not just because of the cold. There are physiological benefits to the cold, but it's the mental benefits that I've noticed. So it's, so it's kind of my version of like forcing, like the extreme version of forcing myself into like, oh, I could have just done this, but like the cold is also really helpful for me. We know that cold water and and that cold exposure is, is, uh, something that's worked for a lot of people. Look at the Wim Hof method and everything like that. Mm -hmm. There's, there's truth to be told in, in all that science. And that's fantastic. So Find what works for you. But one thing I recommend is build an arsenal of tools to put in your toolbox to fight your mental health problems, whatever Mm -hmm. they may be. If you don't want to adhere to the idea that there are mental illnesses and and, and if you call mental health issues or mental health conditions something different, that's fine. We're not going to tell you what or how to think. The recommendation is to find the reputable proven forms of therapies and treatments that work for the most amount of people and start to align them up with your daily activities and your daily life and building that routine regimen that benefits you. Every one of these things may not help you, but you're going to find the right ones that do. And that's going to be amazing. Mm, I love that. Let's go to a couple more questions. Sarah says, I suffer from similar mental health illnesses as you, Kevin. And even though I'm on a strong treatment regimen, I still struggle with suicide thoughts from time to time. It's as if my medicines are wearing off for a little while and I have to fight for my life against my own mind. Is this normal? And how can I combat it? Because I'm afraid I can't live the rest of my life this way. Oh, wow. Sarah, first of all, Thank you for writing in and sharing your truth. We really appreciate it. That's the first thing. You know, Sarah, I live with chronic and regular thoughts of ending my life, but I'm never going to do it because I saw what it did to those who love me, what my attempt. And I got to see that firsthand because of my survival. Now, with what you're going through, Sarah, you don't need guilt. You don't need a guilt trip. What you need is love. You need to have self-love. And when you are thinking of suicide, when the meds are wearing off and you're feeling that low... I want you to look in the mirror and say, Sarah, I love you. Sarah, you're amazing. Sarah, you're the greatest. Sarah, you're the best. And I want you to repeat that over and over again. And I want you to say, Sarah, you matter. Sarah, you are worth it. You are worthy. And say that you love yourself. Sarah, if you look at every faith that's ever been created, we've got recite, repeat, and believe. That's what every faith is truly based upon. Reciting the prayers, repeating the prayers, believing what is said in the prayers. So transition that, Sarah, to your life and your well-being and your better well-being, your better brain health. When you look in a mirror and you recite positive affirmations to yourself that are solid, concrete, and real, and you negate and push away the negative affirmations you feel every day, and you, you alienate them from your mind, and you only focus on the positive, and you recite and repeat, Sarah, you will eventually believe it. Mm. When you do that, you're going to change your life. And that's how I get through my chronic suicidal thinking is I go upstairs, I go to my bathroom mirror, and I say good things to myself so I can survive the day. 
because mm. I deserve this life until my natural end. And so do you, Sarah. And so does everybody on this feed who's thinking of suicide ever in their life. Can you just walk me through a little bit? You know, this is my ignorance, but what is because chronic suicidal thoughts. So these are coming from a place that you're not creating, right? And tell me the, the right language for it. Is it a mental illness or are we calling it that? What is the right thing to, to call it for somebody that, like myself, who maybe doesn't have what you have? First of all, what's it called? And second of all, what does that look like? So it used to be called regular suicidal thinking. And then people started talking about this chronic suicidal ideation. And it's something that I live with on a regular basis. You know, I live in a place where I'm regimented, I'm routined. I do really well mentally for the most part, but it's been a long journey. But I still have these suicidal ideations and thoughts that bring me to a dark place. So people who have thoughts of ending their lives coming in and out of their life on a regular basis, daily, weekly, monthly, even hourly, they would be called people with chronic suicidal thinking. And the DSM, the Diagnostic Tool for Mental Health, the newest one is considering putting this into the Diagnostic Manual for Mental Health conditions as its own separate condition. They've been considering that for a couple of years now, which is terrifying, Justin, because it means that so many people have it. That's the sad part. We live in a society that resiliency has been broken down. We live in a society where people turn to self-harm more often than ever before. In the last few years, the suicide rate has increased 35%, and mm. it's the second leading cause of death amongst 15 and 24-year-olds. It's terrifying, but what we can do about it is amazing. The amount of tools we can place in our toolbox to combat regular suicidal thinking, there's a plethora of them. So I'll give you an example, just to, to answer the question, how do you break through these thoughts and, and what are they? Uh, every day I wake up, I use Blue Wave Lightbox technology to build my better brain health. That's the first thing I do before I do anything else. Then I will- Blue Wave generate, Lightbox. Blue Wave Lightbox technology is something that was diagnosed, uh, pardon me, it was uh, recommended by my doctor, so you have to get it recommended by a doctor. Blue Wave Lightbox technology is this thing you put to the side of your eyes that emits this Blue Wave light. You only do it for a certain amount of time. You put it on a timer. If you go overboard, with, if you have bipolar disorder, it makes you mad, so you can't do that. I learned that the hard way. So you have to do it for a certain amount of time. That's safe. 20 minutes is mine. I do that while I'm doing my morning emails, and that actually helps regulate my mood throughout the day. The light goes into my eyes. It affects my brain. It helps regulate my mood. It's amazing. It's something that they're putting into brand new psych wards and psych hospitals. They're outlaying the ceilings with these blue wave light boxes that are helping people in their wards be more mood efficient and be better brain well. So I utilize that. They also use it in Japan at the railways because they had so many suicides there. It's been helping a lot there. And so I use that. And then I will just to go in a little bit into my routine. Well, first I'll do my breathing. Then I'll do my Blue Wave Life Box on my emails, eating my breakfast. Then I will make sure to go do my morning uh, workout routine or I'll go for a walk with my wife. And from there, I get into my work emails even more, get into some efforts to do, maybe have a speaking engagement online, things like that. And then right before lunch, I do my breathing again, have my lunch, and then I'll go and do some more work. And then uh, right before bed, I'll do my breathing and I'll, I'll rest my, my mind and, and enjoy time with my wife. But I want to just give you that, that rundown of my routine to show people that if you're having these chronic suicidal ideations, A, you need to tell someone close to you about them, especially if you have been keeping them from people for a long time. And, and the reason you tell someone who empathizes with you is the same reason we tell people about our struggling pain shared as a pain have. Because when you tell someone who can recognize your pain, even if it's a crisis counselor, if you feel you have no one at home to talk to or no one safe to talk to, which happens, we have people all over this nation, this globe, living in bad conditions, 
living with abuse, living with domestic abuse, home abuse, whatever the situation may be, and you need to talk to someone, you can text the, the crisis text line. You can text our foundation keyword, CNQR, to 741741 for the crisis text line. That stands for conquer your pain. C stands for courage to talk about your mental health. N stands for normalize the conversation. Q stands for ask the question to someone in pain. Are you suicidal and have you made a plan to take your life? Because it doesn't put the thought in someone's mind, gives them permission to speak on their pain. And R stands for recovery because we are living proof. And so when you text CNQR to 741741, the algorithm collects the data so we know how that tag word has helped people. And I say that to those of you who are at home considering suicide regularly, you don't have to live in that moment forever. You can get past it and you can get past it every time. And that's what I do, Justin. I get past it every time. I turn to my wife, I tell her I'm going through it. Yeah, I was gonna actually ask you as, a, as someone who's married, how do you decide how much to lean on your wife or your partner when you're having these types of thoughts? Because obviously I'm, I imagine that part of the suffering that you go through is not wanting to be a burden, right? Like yeah. I imagine that part of the suicide ideation and these depressive thoughts come from not wanting to burden people. And in some ways I can imagine that for many people, suicide is a, is a way out and a selfless act, right? They think, oh, I'm going to do them a favor yeah. by taking my life. So there's an element of selflessness. Uh, so for people that take their lives, I, I feel like this compassion that they were many thought they were trying to do a good thing in some ways. So how do you wrestle with the burden of like, oh, I don't want to burden my partner with this yet. At the same time, I need my partner. So I used to believe that if I told anybody about my pain mentally, that I was a burden to everyone around me. And then I asked them what they thought. And all of them informed me that if I was thinking these things again, to please tell them because I was no burden. And they would do everything in their power to keep me safe if I was, in fact, suicidal. So I turn to my wife every time. I am a firm believer in being honest about your pain and being vulnerable in your pain. Mm. When you're vulnerable in your pain, you can defeat it. If you allow the pain to defeat you, that's only because you're not letting the pain free. And when you mm. keep it inside, it's only going to fester, bubble, burst, and grow, and then explode. I wonder if that's why more men kill themselves than women. It's because, you know, men historically are not good at letting things out or reaching out for help when they're feeling down. That's why men have a hard time going to therapy. Yeah. Um, they have a hard time telling another man that they're struggling and that they're suffering in some ways. And God forbid, you know, you're, you're having suicidal thoughts. The last thing you want to do is tell someone else as a man, you feel like you as a man, we're supposed to conquer it. We're supposed to be strong enough and like brave enough and tough enough to be able to handle these thoughts. Is that why maybe the, the rate of suicide is higher in men, you think? Oh my gosh, Justin, you just touched, you hit the nail on the head. Think about old, the olden days, all right? You know, think about Jamestown. We, we lived in a place where it was the hunter-gatherer, the male hunted the food, gathered the food, and he was supposed to be tough in all aspects. If he wasn't tough, he got ran over by the other men. If he wasn't the man of the house, he wasn't valued. Let's look at suicide and the history of suicide for a minute. When someone in those times died by suicide, a male, a husband with kids and a wife, died by suicide, they put his open casket in the fork of the road with a stake through his heart. They took all their worldly possessions and took them from those individuals. 
So the stigma and discrimination against those men who, who were suicidal has extended the, the span of time. So they made that man an example for everyone else to you see. You made the man the example. And if you die by suicide, you were a coward and you are less than. And, and that's where the burden came from. That's where it came from. You became the burden on your family because they didn't have any money left because of everything. Their worldly possessions were all taken from them. And they were left on the streets. So this is where this all came from. This is very historical. And it's not something everyone understands or knows. And so we have to be the ones, Justin, to be men that are someone, you're, you know, you're an actor, you're in the public eye, I speak around the world, and people see me and talk to me about my story. We have to be the ones to break down those barriers and say no more. No more are we men going to sadly buy and watch our fellow men and women and children die by suicide at an alarming rate without doing something about it and saying that we love them, we care for them, and that they are no burden to us, they are important to us, and they are valued. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, man. All right, just a couple more. There was a, there was a lot of questions and we can't get to all of them, but this one's interesting. This is from Virginia. She's, she says, how can I best help a family member who is battling depression and seems to be shutting the world out? Virginia, hi, how are you? I've got, I've got a really good suggestion for you that's working for a lot of people. It's a concrete thing you can do tomorrow. We know that one of the greatest tools to someone suffering mentally is the written word. There's a, a man named Jerry Motto who passed away, may he rest in peace, who was on a board with me some years ago promoting the suicide prevention net at the Golden Gate Bridge. And Jerry Motto was a psychiatrist for the 70s for the VA system. And when people would get out of psych units, he did a study of 50% of patients that would receive a caring letter, something that said, we care about you, we love you, we're just thinking about you, we want to know how you're doing. And those 50% that didn't get the caring letter. And they found out that the 50% that got the caring letter stayed alive and well, and they, and they got letter after letter after letter. And the 50% that, that didn't get that letter, more of them died by suicide or attempted than the ones that, that actually got those letters. Mm -hmm. And so the mental health community has transitioned this idea of a letter into a five-part series. Get three to five individuals who love the person you're talking about, Virginia, to write a letter, type it or write it, make sure it's very legible, that has five things. Complete compassion in one sentence. Make a sentence about compassion, a sentence about empathy, about what they're going through, a sentence about unconditional love and how much they matter to you, a sentence about care and how much you care about their well-being, and a sentence about the signs, symptoms, and triggers that you see in them that they're very unwell and that you're worried about. Five things. Five things that you put together in one letter that you get three to five people to write a similar letter it comes from the three to five people that are most important in their lives, and you put them in envelopes and you mail them as a package to this individual. Here's the reason. If we just tell the suicidal individual or the individual with depression or mental illness that it's going to get better, that goes in one ear and out the other when they're in pain. But by sending them these letters, you are showing them how valued they are and physically showing someone how important they are and what you see them going through when they're in denial is much more powerful than in one ear and out the other. Mm -hmm. One thing that uh, a group in Canada did was they created the caring package, a package filled with all of the person's favorite things. Now imagine combining the two, a caring package with caring letters, setting that all together. You're going to make their day, they're going to understand how valued they are, and then you can open up the conversation and say, let's talk about your mental health and get you to safety. Amazing. Let's get to the last few here. Amy says, our community is working to continue mental health services via online formatting. What else should we do to prepare or prevent suicide prevention in our community? Suicide numbers have continued to increase. 
And our local SP coalition is trying to be visible and using creative ways to address SP, suicide prevention. But we are concerned about the impact of isolation, particularly with kids being out of school. Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, One of the things you can do that that could really be beneficial is go to American Association of Suicidology and look up the guidelines for helping communities in pain. There is a great deal of, of information on how to benefit communities going through suicidal crisis. Also, there's a couple of the websites I would love to put out there just because they're, they're really helping a lot of people. Save.org, S-A-V-E, Suicide Awareness Voices of Education. They are tremendously helpful with getting communities rallied in to bring in programs and to help people. And they have a lot of free toolkits for people in, in pain and the people that love them. Uh, and then International Bipolar Foundation, uh, just because I have bipolar disorder and I know a lot of people out there have bipolar disorder and might want to have this information, IBPF.org is extremely helpful for families who don't know what the heck to do with their child or loved one with bipolar disorder. It is really something that can help you find something very valuable to work within your family's dichotomy to get them to better brain health. You know, there's a lot of resources out there. Just we have to be looking for them and ready to take them in and ready to utilize them. Like the tools we gave today, the breathing, the coping mechanism with the hands for everybody out there in that kind of pain or those who love the people that are, just know that we're all going to fight with you to be here tomorrow and every day after that. And that's why I'm wearing this shirt. Be here tomorrow and every day after that, you are valued, you are loved, and you matter. Mm. I think that's a great way to to wrap this up, my man. Is there anything else? Is there one more thing you would want to say to somebody? Is there anything in particular, anything personal uh, that you want to just say to somebody who maybe just needs it right now? Yes. I've been through hell in my life and back many times. And... Every one of those times, I thought I was a goner. I thought there was no way I was coming back from this. And when I recognized that I didn't have to let my pain defeat me, but I could let it build me brick by brick from the ground up, I realized that it would never defeat me, that I would never allow it to bring me to end my own life, and that I would never, ever attempt again, no matter the pain I was in. So to everybody watching right now, with whatever you are going through, I love you, and I want you to stay. So please be here tomorrow. Please find a way to love yourself and recite, repeat, believe every day how truly amazing and gifted you really are. I'm going to echo that. Be here tomorrow. Kevin, you're the man. I so appreciate you taking the time to do this. Kevin, I love you. Thank you you for doing this. Thank you for having me. I love you, man. Margaret and I love sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. For more content and inspiration, go to kevinhindstory.com or visit us on all social medias at Kevin Hines Story or on youtube.com slash Kevin Hines.